So let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 11, and then we're going to go to John chapter 12. Of course, we're reading about the triumphant entry. All four Gospels describe this event, and uh, we've already heard Matthew's account. We've heard Luke's account, so I want to read Mark, and then we're going to look at John, and we're, we're going to think about all of them. Mark 11.1 1 says, As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! Jesus entered Jerusalem. I'm sorry, we're going to stop there. I love the scripture. I just want to keep going forever. John chapter 12 then, beginning at verse 12. We read, On the next day the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is life to us. It is food to our souls, to our hearts, and to our minds. And so we ask that you would bless it as we come that you would grant us understanding, give us ears to hear and eyes to see, give us the faith to believe what you have written, and let us rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ today as we consider these these events. And in Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Jesus fulfilled prophecy as he entered Jerusalem. That wasn't something new. Josh McDowell in his book, um, uh, Evidence of Christianity, describes more than 300 prophecies that were fulfilled by the Lord Jesus, including 29 in one day in a 24-hour period at the uh, beginning with Judas' betrayal of him 
and ending with Jesus being buried in a borrowed tomb. As we look in these passages, I just want to admit, you know, in the sake of full disclosure, that the triumphant entry is probably one of those passages in Scripture that's always kind of made me scratch my head. It's, an, it's a historical event. We see that it took place. We see that Jesus fulfilled prophecy. But, you know, we're, we're driven and we're motivated to understand not only who Jesus was, but what he did and why. And what does that do to me today? What difference does this have for me today? And the, the triumphant entry is just one that I really kind of struggle with. So it's, it's been an interesting week as I've, as I've prayed, as I've read, as I've studied, as I've gone through the scriptures, as I've read commentaries. And, and I, I think I put my finger on something, but you're going to have to tell me at the end. You're going to have to decide for yourself. So let, let's just begin by unpacking a little bit of, of what we've seen. We've seen that the multitudes were coming to uh, Jerusalem for the Passover, a large number were already in the city. There was a large number on the road coming in from the east, from uh, Jericho into Jerusalem. There was a, a large number that gathered as Jesus came along with his disciples. They came out of Bethany and Bethphage. These are the people who recognized him as the man who had raised Lazarus from the dead just a few weeks before. And when Jesus came, then everybody, even the locals, who didn't really need to come into Jerusalem because they lived there, they, they kind of joined. So the picture is not just a normal crowd that you would see every year as people come in. This is an enhanced group. This is a, a much larger group. They come in and they're going to aim themselves, and Jesus is doing that toward Passover. Passover was going to take place on two days. Now, properly speaking, Passover takes place in the Hebrew month Nisan on the 14th day. That will be the 19th of this month, by the way. That'll be next Sunday for us. No, Friday, right? Friday, okay. Uh, they did two days because the, the numbers of people who came to Jerusalem were so numerous that they simply could not get all of the animals handled in a, in a timely way. So the people from Judea and the southern part celebrated on Wednesday, the 14th of, of our story. The Galileans celebrated on the 15th, which is when Jesus celebrated the Last Supper. But Jesus comes in with his disciples. It's not surprising. They're, they're with him everywhere. But it's interesting, very little is actually said about the disciples in this account. This is primarily about Jesus and the multitude. We see a little bit from the Pharisees. And of course, as I said, we see Jesus fulfilling scripture. And this is the scripture, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And we see that fulfilled. A couple of these passages actually tell us this was a fulfillment. Others don't tell us it was a fulfillment. Um, John doesn't specifically say that. He says as it is written. But we see it taking place. Something I do want to point out about this, by the way, it just kind of occurred to me this morning. As Jesus comes in, just endowed with salvation and humble and mounted on a donkey, you can't see that he is just. You can't see that he is humble. You can't see that he is bringing salvation. 
what you can see is that he's mounted on a donkey. And so the Lord has this underlying purpose of bringing a Savior who is righteous, who is filled with salvation, and who comes in tenderness and gentleness, things we can't not see. And then he says, so that you understand that it's taking place, he's also going to come in on a donkey, on a colt, on something that you can see. He ties those two pictures together. So Jesus comes in, he enters the city, as we've seen, the people are shouting, and what's the response to the fulfillment? Well, Jesus' disciples do have something of a response. It's found in John verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 16. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. It, it, Jesus' disciples spent three years with him. They heard everything he had to teach. They saw everything that he did. If anybody in the crowd would have looked at this event and said, we know what this is about, it would have been Jesus' disciples. There's a clue there that the other people, for all their shouting and for all of their, their cries of praise and the hosannas and the blessings, for all of that, didn't have a clue either. Jesus' disciples were in the best position and they, they didn't understand. Because what he was doing was something more than riding into Jerusalem. Jesus was looking forward and he saw every moment of every, of every hour, of every day over the, over the next eight days. And he knew that he was coming into conflict. He knew that he was heading for arrest, for torture, for crucifixion. He came in for that purpose. He's not coming in to be praised. He's coming in to die. He's coming in, really, as the Lamb of God. And it's interesting. He's surrounded by shepherds. He's surrounded by people of the country who are bringing their lambs as well. But Jesus' disciples have a very simple response. They don't understand. They don't pretend to understand. And they didn't understand until he ascended to the Father, until he was glorified and sent the Holy Spirit. We also see that the, the multitude had a, a response to this event. Their response is, is all over the place. And their words are, are also given in fulfillment of a, of a prophecy. It's Psalm 118, 25, and 26. And in that statement, we, we read, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. Let me just point out that phrase, do save, we beseech you, is, is the word Hosanna. It's more in English because of, you know, the Psalms are poetry. But that's the word Hosanna. O Lord, Hosanna. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So everything the crowd is saying is related to Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. We see some variations, don't we? Don't, don't we? We see Hosanna. We see Hosanna in the highest. We see Hosanna to the Son of David. And you know, there may have been other, other variations on that as well. Hosanna, Jesus the Nazarene. Hosanna, Jesus, Son of God. Hosanna, the Son of Man. As people are shouting out, multitudes, you're not thinking dozens or hundreds, you're thinking thousands, and this excitement is going up, and, and people are just casting out these phrases all over the place. 
So Hosanna means save, I pray. It's a plea. It's a heartfelt plea. But it had become a formalized statement. Uh, and we have those ourselves within our modern church. We, we have statements like, praise the Lord. You, you know what praise the Lord means for us? I'm glad. I'm glad. Pat came through her surgery just really doing well. Just really doing well. Praise the Lord. What does that mean? That means I'm glad. That's good news. What we usually don't mean is give God all thanks for what he has done, which is what praise the Lord should mean. Uh, People in other churches, not so much here, but people in other churches will shout out amen when the pastor says something. Amen means so be it. May it be as God wills. That's not what they mean. What they mean is I agree. So Hosanna by this point had become this this religious shout that the people don't really understand. And they're not calling for personal salvation. They're calling for national deliverance. They're looking for Moses. They're looking for someone who will throw out the Romans, who will throw out their political and spiritual enemies. And and we see that in the way that they handle the phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew uses that. Mark uses blessed be is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Mark then also has the phrase blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That, that's nationalistic. That's political. That doesn't have to do with the salvation of your soul. We see in John as they're shouting it out. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel, verse 13. It's a national statement. We're looking for a king. We're looking for a deliverer. We're looking for our nation to be restored to political freedom. These people have never been free. This generation of people had never been free. Their ancestors had been captured and sent to Babylon. The Babylonian Empire was defeated by the Persians. The Persians were defeated by the Greeks. The Greeks were defeated by the Republic of Rome. And the Republic of Rome then became the the Empire of Rome. And they had been under oppression the entire time. Every time one of the big dogs fought another big dog and won, that big dog just took over in Israel. But they've got these memories of what it must have been like in their history of the kingdom under who? Under David. In the power and the glory and the unity of the nation. And that's what they want. That's what they want Jesus to do. In, in John chapter 6, after he feeds the 5,000, Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. This is what's on the hearts of the people. They aren't thinking about forgiveness. They aren't thinking about sin and reconciliation to God. As far as they're concerned, the temple handles sin. The temple handles reconciliation to God. That's not an issue. The issue is more important to them, and that's the problem. More important to them is their identity as a country. Their identity as a nation. So that's the multitudes. We also see a couple of statements about the Pharisees. Not very much is said about them, but we, we do see two things. In the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 19, 
as the people are shouting out, as all of this noise is happening, this roar of, of sound is taking place. By the way, the roar of sound was such that people in the city heard it and came out to see what was going on. The, the Pharisees say to Jesus in verse 39, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, that's a simple statement. Simple statement. But I thought about that statement, and, and I, it, it strikes me as odd. First, they call him rabbi. They call him rabbi. That's what teacher is. They're calling him rabbi. They're, they're saying that Jesus possesses authority, that Jesus is a master of something. They're acknowledging him in that way. They say, teacher, re- rebuke your disciples. So they assume that he has authority over those people. They assume that if Jesus did demand silence, the multitude would stop. And so, without really ever, ever meaning to, the Pharisees acknowledge that Jesus has, the, has authority over the lives of everyone there, including themselves, because they call him rabbi. They're not meaning to. They're not doing this as friends of Jesus. We know that. But they, at the same time, can't deny the authority that Jesus has. John chapter 12 Verse 19, the last verse of, of this passage, the Pharisees said to one another, in all of the depth of their frustration, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. It's, it's a picture of a dogfight. You've got, the, they're like hyenas snapping and growling and biting at each other. They're so angry at what Jesus is doing that now they're attacking each other. So, Jesus' disciples didn't have a clue as to what was going on. The multitudes thought they knew what was going on, but were wrong. The Pharisees, I think, knew more than anyone else, but they rejected him anyway. That's what we're seeing in this in this story. So, so two things really stand out to me in this. One is is that God is faithful. God keeps his promises. God fulfills prophecy we see Zechariah 9 9 fulfilled we see uh, Psalm 118 25 and 26 fulfilled we, we're going to see far more prophecy fulfilled this week every word God says by definition is a promise a promise made by God is a promise kept by God of all the prophecies in in the Old Testament scriptures about the Lord Jesus, the overwhelming majority of them have already been fulfilled. And when Jesus says he's coming back, we can trust that promise because he has kept every other promise. We're in the waiting period now between Jesus' ascension to the Father and his second coming. We're kind of in that. Uh, people have said they've kind of compared it to, to Passion Week, and they've said we're living here on Saturday. We're living in our own Saturday. We're living in our own kind of grave experience. We're waiting for our own resurrection now. We're waiting for the second coming of the Lord. Well, we don't have to have any fear that he'll come back because we have this history that God has given us of all the prophecies he's fulfilled. Jesus didn't fail to fulfill a single prophecy made about him. He never got one wrong. And so God is faithful. But there's something else that's, that's even more important to me, at least on this morning and this week in this passage. 
and it might be important to you. I just want to share it with you. And it's the, the Savior's courage. See, as Jesus comes into this week, he's not just coming in to have brunch on Sunday morning. He's coming in deliberately fulfilling prophecy. I need the donkey because that's Zechariah 9.9, so go get the donkey. He comes in and his eye is set on the cross and the tomb and the empty tomb. All the way through. He's not just looking at the cross and anticipating the suffering. He's seeing the glory at the other end. But he knows he has to go down this road. He knows he can't turn to the right or to the left. And he doesn't. There are thousands of people surrounding Jesus right now. If he had wanted to throw the Romans out of at least Jerusalem, he could have done it. All he had to do was say, follow me, men. Grab your swords. Grab your walking sticks. Get them. And they could have won at least that battle. But he didn't do it. He sets his eyes toward Calvary and everything that's going to happen. Now, I'm attracted to stories of bravery. I don't, I, I don't give an unqualified recommendation for the miniseries Band of Brothers, but it is powerful. And the book it is absolutely wonderful, and it's a story of courage and devotion and love. This, the, this group of men, Easy Company, lands at Normandy, and they're still fighting together all the way up to Hitler's mountaintop retreat at the end of the war. Or, or the, the, the story of the movie Hacksaw Ridge, Desmond Doss, a, a conscientious objector, a Seventh-day Adventist, a Christian who refused to pick up a weapon but became a medic. During the battle for Okinawa, he saved 75 lives. He was seriously wounded himself. He fought in other battles as well. He ended up being crippled. He ended up contracting tuberculosis in the Pacific, went blind from it. And this was a man who, who said, I will lay down my life for others. Even more impressive to me are stories about men like Richard Wormbrand, the, the, the man who wrote the book Tortured for Christ, a Romanian pastor who was arrested and imprisoned and tor- tortured for 14 years. Not just imprisoned, actively tortured as they tried to force him to recant Jesus Christ, and he refused to do it. Corey Tenboom in the book The Hiding Place. Um, uh, Jim Elliott and the others, Nate Saint and the others who died in the 50s, in, in South America, Jim Elliot, who said, "A man is no, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose." I am attracted to stories that, of, of that. And you know, our society and our world is filled with heroes. It's filled with brave people. I wish I was one of them. I really do, but I am not like that, but I admire that so much. But if you took every brave human being that's ever existed and you added up their courage, it wouldn't be a speck compared to the courage Jesus Christ showed on this day riding into Jerusalem. As he faced the cross, as he faced the cross in his love and submission to the Father and his love for his people, as he faced it, a week or two ago a book was, was, was released about uh, zoo nebraska about the royal zoo i've read the book it's an interesting book it's like any book it's one author's view of what took place 
But it reminded me of our last visit to the zoo. Our last visit to the zoo was after the chimps had escaped and all of that drama had taken place, and they were actually close to closing. We didn't know that. And, and they had tigers there. I pushed Kevin up the side of the area. If you remember being there, the tigers were kind of out in the middle, and there was a side area of the walk. And I put, pushed up, and the tigers saw us coming, and they started roaring and lunging at the wire. And we got out, and we went toward that back area. And then as we came out, they were roaring and lunging and trying to jump up. And I read in the book that when the, when the animals were finally distributed to various places, the tigers were dangerously underweight. And it reminded me of how I felt that day that if they had gotten out, my son and I would have died. Because I wouldn't have left him. But I remember the fear I had. And I escaped. I got him out and I escaped as quickly as I could. Jesus saw it coming and didn't try to escape. He took it. He took it. On Monday, he returned to the temple. He forcefully drove out those who had turned it into a den of thieves. On Tuesday, he returned to the temple. He taught, and in that teaching, he didn't say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He pronounced the judgment of God on the nation. He predicted the destruction of the city and the temple. He denounced the Pharisees and Sadducees as hypocrites who were under the judgment of God. Tuesday night, he had infuriated everyone. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people, the Sanhedrin. And so they gathered on Tuesday night and they committed themselves to seizing Jesus secretly and putting him to death. But they said, not during the feast. There's too many people around during the feast. But on Wednesday, Judas Iscariot goes to the chief priests and he says, how much will you give me to betray him? And now they realize, even though it's not their timing... This is their moment. But Jesus had to die this week. If it had been up to them, it wouldn't have been this week. Jesus had to die at the Passover. On Thursday, Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples, which included Judas. Judas came in and smiled and hugged him and kissed him, and they ate. And Jesus knows the whole time what's happening and didn't try to get away. They went out in the garden. Jesus prayed. Almost as soon as he's done praying, the temple guard arrives to arrest him. When his disciples try to protect him, he says, The Father has placed tens of thousands of angels at my disposal. I don't need your help. But he refused to protect himself. And they took him. They hauled him to Annas' house. He was the former high priest. They hauled him to Caiaphas' house, the current high priest, the son-in-law of Annas. They hauled him to Pilate. They hauled him to Herod. They hauled him back to Pilate all through this night. He, he, now, he, I don't know when he gets up on Thursday morning. If he gets up at sunrise, he's getting up at 6 a.m., 5 a.m., 6 a.m. He's been up all night, all night long. And he's being beaten and mocked and tortured and abused the whole time. So much so that when Pilate pronounces a sentence of crucifixion on him, they make him carry his cross, but he can't. He stumbles and he collapses under the weight of it. He's utterly exhausted and never tries to escape. And they take him to the hill and they crucify him. And there's a point where, in order to fulfill prophecy again, he says, I thirst. And they don't give him fresh water they give him sour wine mixed with gall. That, that word translated gall literally refers to bile, that yellow stuff we throw up. 
And it wasn't that, but it was something equally just, just nasty. But they did put myrrh in it. And myrrh, when it's eaten, is a sedative. And so he refused it. Because he wouldn't allow even one nerve ending to be numbed even a little bit. That's courage. That's courage. What a courageous man to die that way. Jesus had told his disciples the evening before in John chapter 15, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And he did it. And he did it unflinchingly. And he did it without asking for help, without asking for pity. What a courageous man to die this way, facing immense agony for his friends. Are you his friend today? I hope for your sake that you are. I hope that you love him. I hope that you trust him. I hope that you recognize his authority and his mastery. And A good definition of authority, by the way, is, is the right and the power to rule. And he has that. And he, he, he rules over us as our friend. We should never come to the, the scriptures without intending to believe it and without intending to apply it to our lives. But unless the Bible says something like pray without ceasing, I can't look at you and say this is what God wants you to do here. And, and so I, I thought that I would just put this up and, and I might even come back to this and invite you to just think about this. Because of this truth, Because of this thing that the Bible says, I will do this by doing this. Just a simple way of trying to govern what we do. Doesn't have to be something that you never knew before, the the because. It can be something that you've always known but stands out in your heart and mind as a key point. This is how I fill this out for me. Because Jesus faced the cross with unflinching courage, glorifying the Father, and demonstrating perfect love for me, I will gladly take up my own cross and follow him where he leads me today by believing and obeying the word he has given me as the Holy Spirit gives me strength. It's simple. But it's, it's something that then I can say, Lord, you've given me your word and you've spoken it to me and this is what it does to me today as I think about this. Father, I thank you for the word. I thank you for the revelation of what Jesus did that day. I thank you that you recorded it in history for us. I thank you that we are not simply left with Jesus died, but we see glimpses of his courage, of his love, of his faithfulness, of his devotion. And I am deeply moved by his courage and the fact that he did this for me. This was no walk in the park. This was something that only the Son of God, God in human flesh, could ever endure. 
And I am so grateful, Jesus, that you did. And I know that my brothers and sisters are as well. As we come into this week, as we think about the events and Each day we might be thinking about different aspects of it, and certainly when we get to Thursday night and Friday night and and Saturday, it it often weighs on our hearts and weighs on our minds that that it really happened. These are historical realities. This isn't just religious fiction, but a historical event. Would you lay as a foundation under all of our thinking this week that Jesus did this out of faithfulness to you and love for us. We thank you for it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.